All right, you turn to Psalm 139. Today we wrap up our January series. As we've said the last few weeks, every year we focus in January on how we can again engage with God in His Word, engage with God in prayer. It's the first two Sundays of January. And then how we engage uh, with the gospel and God's truth on issues like racial, ethnic reconciliation and harmony. And then today, the sanctity of human life. Two cultural issues that are hugely important. Two issues that, generally speaking, very generally speaking here, have been used by the two primary political parties as platform issues. So, generally speaking, you'll hear the left as more of the champion for racial justice. And generally speaking, you hear the right as more of a champion for anti-abortion, pro-life issues. Very vague and broad descriptions. We know there are exceptions. We know there's a lot of overlap as well. For example, abortion is also a racial justice issue because a disproportionate number of abortions are marketed to minority communities and happen within minority communities. And the founder of Planned Parenthood, the modern abortion industry, Margaret Sanger, is very open in her views about how she felt abortion could be used for eugenics to, to wipe out an inferior race as she saw the minority races. But we also desire to tackle these two topics each year to, to help us see the distinction that is the Church of Jesus, that we speak from the Bible, we hear, we understand, we hopefully rightly apply God's Word to these and other issues so that we can see the clear voice of Jesus that speaks to these issues and helps us navigate how difficult they are. In other words, Jesus and His Church are not Democrat or Republican. I would also add, Jesus and His Church are not a middle ground that just kind of compromises between those two parties. Jesus and His Church, His Kingdom, are an entirely different way altogether. A way above all of that. That also seeks to influence all of that. It's a, a third way totally different and distinct than any political party. In fact, just in case you fall prey to this growing Christian nationalism message in our culture, somehow we can wed Jesus to politics and power, just know that we can't. Jesus did not intend his kingdom to become part of the government, or an arm of the government, or part of a, an arm of the political, a political party, or have a military. If you know church history, you know that any time the church and the state have come together, bad things happen. We don't want that. It doesn't work. The church was never intended to have this arm of power and force and might in the physical realm, only in the spiritual realm, that then influences life in the physical realm. Not forcing or coercing God's kingdom on people, but happening as hearts are transformed by the gospel. Now that, that makes our distinctiveness more and more clear. As a Christian, what, what, what makes our distinctiveness more and more clear? As a Christian, you are certainly free and even encouraged to have a job or career in the military, the police force, and for political office. Like, we want salt and light to be everywhere. This is what makes it kind of crazy. On one hand, we don't want this, but as individuals, yeah, go pursue careers in those fields. Be salt and light, grow the kingdom of God, person to person. But it happens as a work of the Spirit and the Word of God, and never by the sword of the state or the laws of the legislators. And even when laws do good things, like uh, William Wilberforce in England having slavery eventually abolished, when laws do good things, know that there's limits to those laws. You're not going to pass enough laws to make the eternal state come to fruition. Not. So they, they accomplish some good, but they'll never create heaven on earth. Because that's intended to be done by God's uh, 
people in the church. So it sounds crazy sometimes. This tension we live with. Turn the other cheek. Don't seek revenge on your enemies. Love your enemies. Like we have no grounds from the Bible for personal vengeance or retaliation. Read Matthew chapter 5. Read Romans 12. But it's perfectly okay to have a job with the military or government in which God says, in Romans 13, we are God's servants or ministers intended to be the sword of the state to reward the good and punish the wicked. So we, as Christians, submit to the government and pay our taxes. Verse 6, and for this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks. And Paul is writing that about the entirely corrupted, evil, pagan Roman Empire. So it wasn't like these guys had their, their act together. Paul's saying, God put them in place to submit to them. Pay your taxes. They are the arm, the minister, the servant of God to accomplish this task. It's crazy feeling these tensions, but it's the radical revolutionary way of Jesus and God's kingdom that was intended to turn, turn the world upside down. And our God's kingdom and following Jesus are full of these tensions that we live with. And we never want to turn being a Christian to some cookie-cutter form. And just that one, two, three, it's easy. Just do these things. We're all about the same. He's intended for our walk with Him to require us to depend on Him daily, to walk by faith and not by sight. And to, and to need Him constantly to figure out these tensions. I, what do I think about that? I, think, I don't know. I need the Word of God. I need the Spirit of God. I need the people of God to help me figure these difficult things out. So even in the issue of abortion, which for the evangelical church, you know, you might hear, have heard plenty of pro-life or anti-abortion sermons over the years, probably not many racial reconciliation sermons, but even in the issue of abortion, there's some aspects that are really clear and some that are super complicated and hard to figure out. So we're going to walk through some of that today. Just so you know, January 22nd, is recognized as Sanctity of Human Life Day, so typically it's the last Sunday or the fourth Sunday of January that's been set aside to recognize that. And it coincides with the anniversary of Roe v. Wade decision that 50 years ago, 1972, legalized abortion. And it was a day set aside to pray for the end of legalized abortion in our nation that over the last 50 years has claimed over 63 million lives. And to the surprise and shock of many, last summer, Roe v. Wade was actually overturned by the Dobbs decision came out of Mississippi. And now the, the issue of legalized abortion, I basically said that the constitutional right does not exist uh, for someone to have a right to an abortion. So states figure it out. So that's what's happening right now. It's being worked out in a bunch of states all over the nation. Louisiana had a law in place, in case you don't know, that if Roe v. Wade was ever overturned, the abortion clinics, I think there were three in Louisiana, would be shut down. And they happened. And it's happened in a lot of states, typically more conservative states. But it's still being worked out. And, and abortions are still readily available. Abortion uh, tourism is a thing where you're encouraged to go to other states where abortions can happen. And many, many uh, more and more abortions are happening now through the mail. Telemed visit with a doctor on your phone and the, the chemical abortion drugs are sent to someone's home. And so that's kind of what it looks like today. You can do your own research and, and, and see what, how that's going on. This morning I want to talk about a few related questions that I hope will continue to give us a biblical footing to stand on and navigate these issues as Christian citizens who live in a country that gives us the right to vote and speak to these issues. So first, what is the biblical foundation behind saying that abortion is wrong and sinful? And the second, why is the sanctity of human life not just an abortion issue? Why, why being pro-life isn't just about ending abortion? So 
First, the biblical foundation behind saying abortion is sinful is rooted in the, the idea of who is in the womb. Who is this being inside the womb of the mother? Um, is it a human being made in the image of God, or is it just organic substance? And you probably know from uh, Psalm 139, the Bible speaks clearly about these things. Verse 13, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. This incredible, intimate picture of how God is involved in the creation of humanity within the womb of the mother. Not just the creation of us, the forming us in the, the womb of the mom, but all of my days were planned before a single one of them was lived. It's, it's our entire lives. God is sovereign over all of that. He knows all of that for 20 billion people who have ever lived. I mean, it's crazy. We've got however many Facebook friends, and we're like, I don't even know who that person is, but they're a Facebook friend. But God has billions of people all their days sketched out before Him, knowing every single one who's ever lived, no matter how long or short their lives are. Isaiah 44, 24. This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, says. The Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made everything. who stretched out the heavens by myself, who alone spread out the earth. Jeremiah 1.5 I chose you, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So God is intimately involved in the creation of humans in the womb, viewing them, treating them as humans before they were ever born. Which is also, we know from Genesis 1, that they're image bearers. They bear the image of God. We alone in all creation bear His image as humans. God sees us in the womb as human before we're born. We know from the earliest moments of conception, this new image, human image bearer had their own unique DNA. And within a few weeks, we have their own heartbeat, their own fingerprints, and other key essentials that make us not just human, that make us individuals, like who we are. Like, you need fingerprints, you need DNA that we alone possess. And these are things we didn't know when abortion was legalized. We didn't have the technology to know all these things. And, and so at one time, the debate was centered around, it's not really a human being, it's just a glob of cells, a fetus, these depersonalized words that were used. But as technology has advanced, now we know this is really a person. And, and so that, that kind of changed the hearts of a lot of people on, on the whole issue. So if... The person in your womb is not a person, is not a human being, then you don't really have to have this discussion. If it's just a clump of cells and it's a blob of tissue, organic substance, then do whatever you want. Perfectly fine. But if that is a person, and, and even those who are pro-abortion today admit it is a person. We can't tell you anymore it's not. We know all the science technology. If that is a person, a human being in the, in the womb of the mother, and there really is no justification for abortion or any life of the human. Biblically. Especially when considering a vast majority of abortions are either for convenience or because it's just difficult and hard to add a child to your life. Like a very small percentage of abortions are because of rape, incest, genetic abnormalities, or the health of the mom or the babies at risk. Florida is the only state that tracks this data. And uh, in Florida, less than 5% of abortion or for those combined reasons. It's perfectly okay to say that when abortion became legal 
and the subsequent 63 million lives that have been lost since is one of the most horrific acts of injustice our nation has ever experienced. It's okay to say that. We grieve over 6 million Jews who were exterminated by the Nazis. We're talking about 63 million people. Now, even before the Dobbs case last summer, which said abortion was no longer a constitutional right, uh, abortions have been on the decline. That's, that was already happening as, as hearts were changing and more information was being shared. Younger generations have increasingly become more and more pro-life or anti-abortion. But the number of abortions experienced in the U.S. are dropping the bucket compared to the rest of the world. So we've had 63 million over the last 50 years. Last year alone, 73 million babies were aborted around the world. Just 3% of abortions happen within the U.S. Now, I know when issues have become increasingly politicized, sometimes it's scary to take a firm stance. But biblically, this was kind of easy. Human life begins in the womb and should be valued and protected as much as life outside the womb. Abortion is the murdering of humans in the womb. It's not okay with God. It's sinful. It's not unforgivable. We're not saying that. We're going to deal with that for a little while. It's also not inconsequential. Okay? The sanctity of human life is also not just an abortion issue, though. Frankly, more of our sermons in the history of our church have been on other issues not abortion-related. Because it's been assumed that in churches like ours, this abortion issue is just cut dry, rise on the same page, we got it. But sometimes we need to come back and be reminded that there's no biblical case for abortions. If you want to be careful how you navigate and talk about that because of political realities, fine, be careful. But biblically, it's clear. But when we talk about the sanctity of human life, we're also talking about more than just abortion. And Christians who have been very vocal about ending abortion have sometimes been criticized for only caring about unborn life. Now, all you care about is Roe v. Wade being overturned. Now, typically Christians, people who claim to be Christians, we give more money to charity, we give more money to, to, to ministries and charities that help the poor. We, we do more as Christians in the fostering and adopting world. Every single pregnancy center in every city in the U.S. has been opened by Christians. We do a lot of things so, so the criticism is sometimes unfounded, but it's still something we have to make known that we don't just care about the life of the unborn person. We care about everyone involved. So for the mom, the dad, who have this unplanned pregnancy, who see abortion as the best way forward, like we want to be connected with all of them and say, it doesn't have to be that way. There's a choice that you can make that is life-giving and not life-taking. Here are people to help. Here's another way forward. And then we're actually there to walk with that person, not just through the next nine months of the pregnancy, and, and, and then to help them place that child with a home who wants to raise, if that's what they want, but, but also beyond. If you want to keep the child, and you're a single mom, or a single dad, or a young family, and you're struggling, that's where the, we step in as a church and say, hey, we're, we're here to help. We're here to help. We want to give life to you, because we don't just care about you having a baby, we care about you raising a baby. Care about you loving a baby, training a baby in the way that they should go. Ideally, that's what would happen. And that's what so local crisis pregnancy centers want to foster. We have two in Monroe, Life Choices, and a newer one called The Vine. It's, and there might be more. It's who God's people have always been caring for the widow, the orphan, the alien. Whoever that family is, a single person, a couple, you have a pregnancy you don't want, we're here to help. It doesn't have to be conversations on in the past. I know that have happened between parents 
in their teenage kids, if you get pregnant, just know I'm shipping you off somewhere secretly. Have the baby secretly. Then you can come back. And be like, nobody ever did. Like, you don't have to have those conversations with people. We can be open about this and work together and, and help and love. If you want to keep the baby, we'll help. If you carry the baby until they're born, somebody will raise the baby. In the first century, the Greco-Roman world, you have a baby you don't want, you just leave it outside. Let the elements and the animals take care of it. That literally happens how evil pagan baby they were. You have a baby, it's a girl, I don't want a girl, I want a boy. Just let her die. And Christians, historians tell us, were known for baby runs, running through the streets of the city, finding these babies left to die and grabbing them up and raising them. Radical compassion, radical sacrifice, radical selflessness. So what would that look like today? How, how can we be so pro-life, so for the health of everyone involved that we're, we're doing things that make people say, y'all are crazy. Not just politicking, but investing ourselves, our time, our energy, our money, our resources, sacrificing for the good of families. We'll give up our comfort. We'll spend our time. We'll spend our money. We'll do whatever it takes to spread the aroma of life because we care about every image bearer. Everyone matters. The one in the womb, the one with the womb, and the one who helped create life in the womb. They all matter. If we mean that, and our everyday life isn't running across or becoming aware of these kinds of situations, then we have to ask God to show us how to change something about our everyday life. We're going to have to redirect our lives in some ways to different groups of people or different parts of our city or different ministries or entities in, in, in the government, different relationships, so we can be more aware, so we can help more. So you, you might need to think and pray and consider being a foster family. They always need more foster families. Y'all know that we've had several families in our church who've done that before. We'd all love to tell you what that will look like and how you can do it. And then we, as a church, would say, we'd love to help you. Need a respite, need a break, need meals, need encouragement. What can we do to help you stay in the game? If that's the calling God has for you. Other practical things that would require altering your life. Like go to Life Choices of Mind. How can I help? Make your life open and available to be interrupted to give time and energy and resources to help single moms or young couples struggling through unplanned pregnancies or hard situations or just raising young kids and everything's 50,000 times more expensive now. And you're getting behind everyone financially. If you have the means to help, help. Pray and begin to ask God how to rearrange your life to come across more situations that you can help with. Find foster families and help support them. Give meals or date nights or respite. That's, that's just a few suggestions. There's so many more. And Anna Lynn Frazier, writing for the Gospel Coalition last July, she talks about her journey on this issue. She hoped that she would never need an abortion, but she was pro-choice because she wanted access to it if she ever needed it, and she felt like abortion should be part of the health care available to all women. Then she became a Christian, and her view radically changed. She said, now I see God as creator, and the life of the womb is a human. Who are we to take that life? But she was still pro-choice. Because she didn't feel like she should impose her individual view on others. Everyone can make their own choice, she thought. Then she read the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. In the book, Douglass said the most frustrating thing, uh, the most frustrating people to him were people in the border states before the Civil War 
who believed slavery was wrong but would work to uphold the law of the land at the time. They would even return runaway slaves to their owners because it was the law. Personally, slavery is wrong, but who am I to impose my perspective on someone else? So I'm going to, I'm going to take care of the slave owner by returning their property, because that's what the law says, they own these people, instead of imposing my personal convictions on them. And this struck Anne Lynn Frazier powerfully. She said, the legal rights of the slave owner are more important than the life of the slave. And she immediately moved from purchase for life. For life. And she goes on to write that abortion is in fact anti-woman, making women more like men so they can advance in life without the baggage of kids, creating a false dichotomy between the woman and the child so the choice has to be made, and the fact that abortions disproportionately kill more girl babies and future women because of so many cultures around the world that value sons more than daughters and therefore more female babies are aborted. She closes with this, we must fight to shape a world that recognizes, celebrates, and honors women for what we can uniquely offer as women, not as people who are interchangeable with men. This includes rewriting the narrative around childbearing and rethinking our ideas about what female empowerment means. With time, maybe we'll get to a place in society where even if a woman finds herself in an unwanted pregnancy, she'll never consider the evil equation that says her life can only go on if her child's life doesn't. Instead, by God's grace, she'll choose to carry the child even if the circumstances are incredibly hard, not seeing this as a compromise over God-given power and calling as a woman, but as an embrace of it. Who else matters? What other lives matter? Yes, the unborn lives. And abortion is sinful because we're ending the lives of humans primarily because of comfort or convenience. But it's not just the unborn lives that matter. It's also the ones who have had the abortions. The ones who have performed the abortions, who have helped perform the abortions. Maybe their eyes have been opened and they're no longer doing that. Or those who have encouraged the abortion, whether it be parents, men involved, or, or whatever, friends. One survey of women recently found that uh, of women in evangelical or Catholic churches between the ages of 30 and 50 who've ever been pregnant, 12% of them have had an abortion. It's a little more of mainline churches. And for those with no church affiliation, it's 28%. It's even higher for those who became pregnant while not married. And many people believe all of those numbers are underreported because of the shame associated with, with abortion, especially in the church. In another survey of women, post-abortion, 70% claim to be Christian, 43% were attending a church at least once a month when they made the decision to terminate the pregnancy. Now these are surveys, no idea how that's reflected in our church or our area, especially when the closest abortion clinic was in Shreveport. Now more and more abortions are happening through the mouths I mentioned. And so in our context, if those decisions are made, it might become even more shamed and more secret because it's not readily available. But God cares about the souls and lives and well-being of those moms and dads and doctors and nurses too. He desires for them to be set free from shame and condemnation through Jesus and his gospel. Like, you don't have to hide. It's not the unforgivable sin. While we never minimize the consequences, there is always healing available. There's always hope because of Jesus. There's always cleansing. 
Sometimes when women struggle with things like substance abuse or self-harm or, or it could be even men, it's wise to ask about hidden sins. And sometimes that hidden sin is secret abortions. It's heartbreaking. Years ago, I, I, I was pastoring the first church I pastored and preached a sermon like this. and Probably the first one I ever preached in that small rural church. And, and then you could hear a pin drop. I remember some of the moms, I felt like they were almost holding their breath. One lady in particular was in tears the entire sermon left before the sermon was over. Brokenhearted but grateful to hear that this sin is not so dark or so hidden it can escape the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of Jesus. It can. First John 1. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And there's absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying. We're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all sin. Unrighteousness. God, help us be a church, a people who do not hide in our sins, but we bring them into the light so we can be cleansed, so that we can have fellowship restored between us and God, so we can have fellowship restored between us and one another. Yeah. And for those who are suffering under the weight of sin connected to abortion, we pray for them, especially for healing and hope in Jesus to overwhelm them. Overwhelm them. I want to close by reading... This prayer written by a pastor pertaining to this. Oh God, we praise you that you are a God of life. You are the Alpha. All things have their beginning in you. So this morning we unite our voices in a cry like that which was heard in Rama. Weeping with loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We lift our voices to you. We say, Oh Lord, Hear our cry. Hear our cry for the loss of life in this country. Well, the 63 million babies that have been born in this country since Roe v. Wade. What a stain upon our nation. It's a number that is hard for us to even understand. We are overwhelmed by thinking of that much lost life in just a generation. It's such a great number. We confess it feels like just a number. And yet we know you formed every one of those children. You knitted them together in their mother's womb. You know their blood type, their chromosomes, their very, very DNA because they are from you. And yet they are no more in this world. And our hearts sink. We pray for our nation. We are thankful that there's a possibility of seeing no more abortions in this nation. We desire that, not just because laws change, because hearts change. May we uphold your law, give it for our good. Thou shalt not murder. May your divine command echo through the halls of justice, the minds of doctors, the hearts of mothers, the souls of fathers, even conversations around water coolers. We pray for the purveyors of this wickedness. May their funding dry up, their arguments fall in deaf ears, their laws be spurned, their clinics be closed. We pray most of all that they would be convicted in their hearts and minds, that they would repent, and a life lived in pursuing death would find the blessing of life. We long to hear story after story of this abortion doctor, that Planned Parenthood worker, that nurse, this politician who's come to know you 
to know life and know it abundantly. We pray, Father, this morning for mothers struggling with unexpected pregnancies, a child in her womb that maybe she didn't plan for, but you did. She may be struggling this morning thinking how her life will change, perhaps the embarrassment, the sacrifice, the responsibility that will fall upon her. Help these mothers be courageous. Grant them grace to be merciful. Give them love for their children that are in their wombs. Quiet their anxieties. Steal their fears. Provide for them. We pray for the fathers who maybe even, even this day are pressuring and persuading and demanding and funding an end to the life in the womb of their wife or girlfriend. Under your mighty power, humble them, Father. Rather than playing God, help them to play the man. Bearing their responsibility, leading in righteousness, caring for the weak. Finally, for those of us who have aborted a child in the past, we pray that you would forgive us. We are thankful Christ came into the world to save and grant forgiveness. Let us never, ever doubt that power. May our enemy find no foothold there. For those of us who continue to grieve over our past sins, comfort us. May we not be like Rachel, who refused to be comforted. May you hear our cry, respond with your mercy, and wrap us in your eternal love. May we know that peace, that peace which surpasses understanding. May we rejoice in your forgiveness this day. Hear our prayers for the children of our nation. Please, O oh Father, ensure that each state upholds life, human dignity, and righteousness and makes laws and policies. We unite our hearts before your throne, Father, for those who have not only the least of voices among us, but for those who have no voice. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ, your only begotten Son. Amen. As we do every Sunday now, uh, we are moving to a time of communion.